conversations with Jesus. And if you want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2, uh, <clears throat> we're going to be working through the Gospel of John for a while. Uh, <clears throat> there are several uh, features about the Gospel of John that make it uh, fairly unique <clears throat> and a fairly, I think, important in this particular kind of series about these conversations. So we're going to spend some time there. We're going to work around in some of the other Gospels uh, as it relates <clears throat> to this. Uh, <clears throat> but the idea of conversations with Jesus... You know, I, I know uh, sometimes when I reveal things about myself, you go, how does Becky stand him? But, you know, I, I, I get that. Uh, you know, I have, for whatever reason, had a fascination uh, over the years with mafia movies. Anybody with me? You know, I keep telling every guy I know, everything always goes back to the Godfather. Every truth in life, every principle in life goes back. But, I, but I, I've just been fascinated uh, by those uh, Deals. I, there are lots of neat lines in them, you know. <clears throat> but what I've been interested in is uh, uh, particularly uh, the way that sometimes in the mafia they talk to each other, uh, you know, kind of in code. Uh, you know, I know a guy. Did you do that thing? Uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm still amazed in the Godfather, in Godfather 3. And again, some of you are thinking, i got to find another Sunday school class. <clears throat> in Godfather 3, when, 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 when uh, Michael hugs Fredo, and just looks at Hal. They don't do any eyebrow stuff like that, and they're going to kill him. Uh, you know, and that's the conversation. It just, just, just freaks me out. I, I, I think about those kinds of conversations, and I know a guy, and did you do that thing, and all this kind of, kind of code language that goes on in there. Now, in real life, the mafia is not quite that interesting and funny. Uh, in fact, in recent years, uh, you may know about a guy named John Gotti that I thought was kind of ironic because they did Gotti him. And, you know, there's just certain things. I mean, you know, think, you know, they Gotti. Uh, you know, uh, uh, forget it. Uh, anyway, uh, the, the idea uh, about him was that he was a fairly famous uh, gangster in New York. And uh, part of the problem of catching John Gotti was that he had this little place called the Ravenite Social Club. Again, I, you're probably thinking, why do you know this much information? <clears throat> uh, I told you I'm interested in this. There's a couple of guys in this room that would know all about this, so I'm just going to leave it alone. Uh, <clears throat> they probably surveilled him. Uh, <clears throat> um, that Gotti, one of the things that he did <clears throat> was that Gotti would not talk inside the house or place there, the Ravenite uh, uh, Social Club. He would go on a walk with his capos. And I, you know, I just, I, I told you I'm a little weird like this. <clears throat> this little picture of him uh, <clears throat> in front of that. And this is uh, Mr. Gotti. And he's uh, going to take a walk and they're going to talk together about all these things they're doing. And if you know anything about the history here, <clears throat> the government tried to, con- uh, tried to prosecute him like three or four times. He finally got a name. Do you remember, <clears throat> do you remember what the name of him was? The Don, the, the Teflon Don. <clears throat> That's right. Yeah. <clears throat> so, because they couldn't convict him. They, they just couldn't catch him. But what was interesting was that whenever they did finally catch him and convict him, they did it because they were finally able to get him on tape in a conversation. He was in a conversation with some other people and began to admit and say some of the things that he did. And so his conversation on tape was finally what sent him to prison, and then he went for the rest of his life to Joliet. And uh, I know too much about this, so I'm going to go on. Uh, but anyway, I just think it's interesting that sometimes conversations reveal an awful lot, don't they? 
Sometimes you've just been talking to people and it seems to be just kind of niceties like, how are you doing? And we don't really care. And, you know, uh, you know, we don't. You know, I, when I walk through the hall to the university, I don't go, how are you doing? Because I'm not stopping to find out, you know. I just say good morning, you know, or good afternoon, whatever. I'm not going to get stopped. i got work to do. Uh, but conversations have a way of revealing things. And, and part of the, the impetus for me in the Gospels here is understanding uh, what some of these conversations that Jesus had or incidents that he had, what do they reveal to us? And so I want us to look here. How do you go from the Godfather and John Gotti to John 2? I have no idea. <clears throat> okay? <clears throat> but just stick with me here. It'll at least be entertaining. Uh, In John chapter 2, we've already dealt with the miracle at Cana at at verse 13. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen, And he poured the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. I imagine they weren't too happy about that. And those who were selling the doves said, and to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for the house or for thy house will consume me. The Jews said to him, what sign do you do to show us your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Now, I want to look at this uh, under the topic here again, this conversation with Jesus about what we can learn. And I've had two weeks to think about this, so that is dangerous. Uh, I I don't know about you, but when, when you read this, if you've read the Gospels before, there's a little interesting feature here about the Gospel of John that seems to be different than the other Gospels. Do you, do you see it there? Kind of interesting. Just in this sequence here. You see, you see anything here that, that is saying, well, that's different than the other Gospels. Okay, there will be a test. <laughs> yes? It does detail that the disciples remember everything. That, that's one thing. Yeah, that, that, that's not what I was thinking of, but that, that's one thing there that, of the details. Well, let me cut to this. In all the other Gospels, the cleansing of the temple as at the, the end of Jesus' ministry. Right? Remember that? The cleansing is at the end of Jesus' ministry. In the Gospel of John, the cleansing is when? The beginning. At the beginning. Now, if you go read the synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic means to see the same. That's all it means, to see the same. That the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke see Jesus' life in a bit of a different sequence here. And there are some people that when they address this, and I told Becky, I said, do I dare go into this? She goes, yeah, go ahead. When you're dead and gone, people will remember it. And I thought, you think that's going to be very soon? <laughs> you don't have some plans, do you? <laughs> uh, but I will tell you this, in, in reading the Gospels and in talking to people 
in the future as you talk with people, there are people that have problems here, right? Have some struggles and difficulties here. Because, if you will, this is out of sequence. And we know that. Now, some have suggested two things. One is that John is not concerned about history. John is concerned about theology. And there's some truth to that. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. That John is not as concerned about history, just history for history. Like Jesus did this on Tuesday, and they did that on Wednesday, and then they washed their clothes on Thursday. I mean, that, that's not what the Gospels tell us, right? Go back and look at John chapter 20, verse 31, where John says, if, if we recorded everything that Jesus did, all, you know, the books in the world wouldn't hold it. We, they're selective, aren't they? They have to be. So everything in the Gospels is not everything that happened. It's the things that the writers chose. I'll, I'll talk some more about that in a minute. Uh, so there's that idea that John's not that concerned about history. He's more concerned about theology, I think, may be true. Number two, is it possible, and some have suggested, that Jesus did this twice. <laughs> Remember, they wanted to kill him, okay? They weren't just interested in getting him out of town. They wanted to kill him. In fact, did Jesus do this at the beginning of his ministry? When he walked into Jerusalem and did that, and, and then whenever at the end he left and he did it again. Now, some uh, scholars will say because in the synoptics, Jesus said this on a couple occasions. I was in the temple every day, many days, teaching you publicly. That it doesn't appear that Jesus just went there once. So I, I, I want to move us through this. So uh, I, I want to look here is how to listen to this conversation. How to listen to this conversation. Uh, number one, there are some unique features I will tell you about the Gospel of John that we probably ought to think about. Uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, and, and these are things that are not in the other Gospels. They're just not present. One is multiple trips to Jerusalem. There are multiple trips to Jerusalem that are not recorded in the synoptics. Uh, number, uh, another thing is there are, is almost, you might take John 15 and pull that out, but there is almost no use of parables in the Gospel of John. Almost none. Uh, which is the Jesus uh, teaching style of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so in John, you find very little, if any, parables. Uh, another uh, matter, as we've already referred to, he begins with cleansing the temple in John. In the synoptics, it ends. That's, uh, that's uh, that feature. Uh, another area is you have uh, s- some significant, what, what we would call significant philosophical and theological categories. I've often been amused when, when I was growing up, when a person became a follower of Jesus, they always said, now, the first book in the Bible you need to read is, why did they say that? You know, the book of John starts out with a philosophical position, first of all, strapped out by Herculeitus about the Logos being the controlling central principle of the universe. This is philosophy. This is theology at a high level. I've always said to people, don't read that book first. Read Mark. Read Mark. It's simple. It's easy. It moves along. So John is incredibly packed with theology. And that has a a concern here, if you will. Uh, That what we discover is that uh, in listening to this particular book, there are some unique characteristics of it. We can't deny that. And, and how do we understand that uh, to harmonize it? So let me ask you to look at this here. So the kind of document that we're dealing with, the, the Gospel of John particularly, the kind of document. Uh, one of the things that was helpful for me, and I'm going to run through this because I don't want to spend the whole time on this, uh, intellectual, uh, this uh, philosophical stuff. 
one of the things that was helpful to me, and by the way, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but one of the stumbling blocks for people in Islam is because there are four Gospels. Do you know that? That's a real stumbling block for them. Because they're saying if there is a Gospel, there ought to be what? One. Well, you know, okay, say all right. If, if again, the kind of document we're dealing with is just a diary. We just, okay, they did this on Tuesday, and then they did that on Wednesday, and then on Thursday. That is not the nature of these books. Let me tell you what they are. These are theological documents with historical truth. These are not historical documents with theological truth. It's an important distinction. These are theological documents with historical truth. They can be traced and found and seen. But the driving force of the Gospels are that they are theological documents attempting to communicate the massive, if you will, complexity of the God-man. Think of it this way. In Matthew, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, it's over. This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. I mean, it wear you out. This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. This was so. So in Matthew, Jesus is the one who fulfills the Old Testament prophet uh, a promise of the the Messiah. In Mark, Jesus is the one who is known by supernatural revelation. It's a fascinating feature of Mark. Is this nobody knows who Jesus is except through super natural revelation. You know who five of them are? Demons. Five of the confessions in the book of Mark are this. I know who you are. You are the Christ. One of them is Peter. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The seventh one, is the Roman soldier at the cross that in seeing the work of Jesus says, surely this was the Son of God. That, that book is not concerned about... I mean, I, had, I read a, 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 a survey one time about, you know, the word immediately shows up in Mark. Have you ever read that one? You know, immediately, immediately. Drive you nuts, right? Immediately, immediately. I, I felt like uh, that I was living with me <laughs> when I read it. I mean, that's the way I live. Immediately, immediately, you know, every time. And... And I read a, a, a praise one time on the book of Mark that said, well, what the book of Mark is about is about Jesus busily doing the work of His Father. That misses the point, I think. Jesus isn't just busy. What the theological concern that Mark has is how do you know who Jesus is? I mean, go, go read it. Some, you know, several times the disciples, after the same event, feeds the 5,000 or calms the water. You know what they say? Who is this guy? Now, they're either thick-headed or Mark is trying to say, look, you, you need to know that understanding who Jesus is is not a matter of intellectual prowess. It's revelation, man. It's revelation. So, Mark, uh, Luke, Jesus is the Savior of all the world and the Gentiles. That's why his genealogy, Jesus, is, goes back to Adam. And in Matthew, it goes back to Abraham. Why? Because he's the Savior of the world, not just the Jews. And so that genealogy goes back. So he's the Savior, if you will, of the Gentiles. And John, John, this incredible theological document that Jesus is God in the flesh. 
in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And that Greek word, it's prostantheu. It says he was face to face with God. It's a brilliant, it's an incredible way to say. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. It was, he was prostantheu. He was face to face with God. I mean, this is an incredible book. This one who has light. Anyway, I've got to go on. And so what's happened is, as people have said, because these different sequences happen, there's a, what we call the synoptic problem. They don't all line up. They don't all say the same thing. That's true. That's We've got to own that. The question is, why is that? The, the answer is because these are theological documents with historical truth, not historical documents with theological truth. Now you may say, Cliff, that's a distinction far too wide. But I want to suggest to you that it is important for us to understand what kind of documents these are and not lay on them a 21st century requirement that they have to line up with everything like we do or that's a contradiction. Ever heard people talk like that? It's because they don't understand the kind of document that it is. Here's another thing. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, for the, they were written to different audiences. Matthew's written to Jews. Hence, when Jesus says, we know he doesn't say this, Matthew changes it. He says the kingdom of heaven. He never uses the word kingdom of God. Why? What would that do to a Jewish audience? They'd quit listening immediately. He changes it. We know that. It's not the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus spoke about, what he preached about. But when you're, right, when you're talking to a Jewish audience, you don't use the word God for anything. May his name be blessed and praised. You know? So they're written to different audiences with different theological, if you will, purposes and interests. It doesn't mean that they're not interested in history. It simply means that history is not the driving force. It's not the driving force here. There is something about Jesus that every one of these puts together. I know when I went to seminary, I began to say, you know, I used to think the Gospels were just like the book of Proverbs, just a one-liner every other time, you know. No, they're, they're, they're very importantly crafted. Here's another thing. Uh, in, in, in this matter, and I, I don't have time. If you're interested, I can t- give you some more information on this. The other thing about the kind of, kind of document we're dealing with, uh, a long time ago, I used to play baseball. And uh, 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 I was a catcher until I killed a guy. We didn't wear helmets back then. We didn't wear helmets riding bikes. I mean, we were tough, right? Remember those years, guys? Remember that? Yeah, we, huh? we, yeah, do what? Yeah. We had, a lot of, we had a lot of head injuries, but, you know, yeah. I remember, I remember being a catcher, and uh, I remember whenever I was catching, that be- between myself and the pitcher, there were signals that we would give. You know, and that was so I would know, what is this guy throwing? So I can set up correctly. You don't set up the same way for high inside curve, uh, high inside uh, smoker, you know, high, high inside slider, in the same way you set it for a low and outside curve. So we had to communicate, okay, what, what's coming? What, 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 what picture are you about to give so that I could set up correctly? You know, it's the same way with the Bible. People make, I think, big mistakes. There are different literary styles in the Bible. There are what we call narrative, which is two-thirds of the Bible, which are story which has as its feature the attempt to uh, have a character development, 
plot development, problem, resolution, and get it done. In poetry, it's language at high voltage. When David said, my tears are my bread all day, does that mean that's all he's eating that day? Probably not. You know, you know when he says all these kinds of things, poetry is, is language at high voltage. We don't press that hard. And yet, I've had friends of mine, we've talked about this, I've said, why do you think that when David said, in sin did my mother conceive me, that that proves that you have a sinful nature? That's poetic literature, man. There are all kinds of possibilities here now. In sin did my mother conceive me? In other words, is David saying, I'm the result of an adulterous relationship? Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying, hey, I want to get this off of me? I'm, I'm t-. Poetry has that feature. Epistolary material has the feature of developing an idea. Logical, analytical. So all of the, and apocalyptic, I, I talked about you know, the book of Revelation and things like that. You know, you say, well, you know, there's going to be this. Well, how do you know that? Well, that's what it says, but I know. But what does that mean when a woman is riding a dragon and eating a baby? Is that literal? (laughs) Wow, this is going to get interesting, right? It's a dragon, riding a two-headed dragon, eating a baby while we're riding a dragon. You know, know, again, as a catcher's got to set up for the kind of pitch they're going to get, A person reading the Bible has got to set up, what am I receiving here? Is it story? Is it logical, analytical? Is it poetic? Is it apocalyptic? I I know this. i got to go. But but, but I'm going to tell you something. You and I will make serious errors in reading the Bible if we think it's one literary style and it's flattened out and all we say is that's what it says. My next question is, What does it mean? I know what it says, but what does it mean? Those are the crucial issues here. So when we see this and see, well now wait a minute. This has got to be a contradiction because this going to Jerusalem and cleansing the temple, that didn't happen till the end. Well again, I already told you. One is, it could have happened twice. We just don't know. Two, it could be that John's Uh, concern here is not just history for history's sake, but theology. Does this make any sense? I feel like in my classroom, I feel like we should have a test. Okay, I'll put your heads down on your table. (laughs) I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. (laughs) You know, here, back to this other thing about the kind of document. You know, I've done a little research in this area, and I've got tons of material if you want to talk about it later or something. Uh, This idea of four different Gospels that have four different if you will, views and slants on seeing Jesus. You know, I know this, that when a person or, or a court case is gone, I have a few friends that are lawyers. You know, I've tried to, you know, be kind to the pagan. And, uh, <laughs> ouch! <laughs> uh, I know this, that in court cases, that if you ever get three or four people in a case and they're given the same exact testimony, you can guarantee or generally guarantee there is something going on. They've got themselves together and they got one story and they're going to stick with it. Why did the early church see all four of these and say these are honest, historically accurate versions of the person of Jesus that we walked with? Because they knew what kind of document it was. They knew it wasn't just a diary. 
If you want to study more, Adolf Deisman and other uh, scholars have suggested this idea. So do we know that? Now, let's, let's keep going. How to listen to this story. There's another thing here. Well, I bet you feel like you've been to class when you think, I need another donut. <clears throat> I think in understanding this conversation, uh, there has to be some review of the history. Uh, Jesus comes to the Passover, which is the great high holy day in Judaism, uh, in the month of Nisan, usually the 15th, when uh, the sacrificial lamb is given and uh, celebrate the uh, uh, coming out of the Exodus, or c- coming out of Egypt, called the Exodus. There's a couple of things going on here, historically. This was the place, if you want, I've got a picture here. Oh, wait a minute. No, I don't, here we go. I'll come back to this. <clears throat> here is a picture or artist rendition uh, that uh, is of the temple. And uh, what, what you have here is where Jesus is. This is a 35-acre uh, area. Uh, over here, uh, this is uh, the colonnades that Herod was building uh, out here on the outside. This out here is considered the court of the Gentiles and women. This is the court of the men, and inside there is the court of the priests. And so this huge area out here will come important. This is where uh, the, women, the Gentiles and the women uh, would be uh, in terms of a time of worship. And this would be the place of the men. Uh, when Jesus says, and we'll come back to it, when, when Jesus says you're going to build this temple in three days again, they misunderstand him. Herod has been building this temple area for 35 years. It's still not finished. It was considered to be one of the great uh, uh, building accomplishments in the entire history of Israel, maybe even some parts of the world. So it's a huge area. <clears throat> it's a big place. And in the history of this, uh, we have this statement here. On, on the outside, whoops, I can't hear you. On the outside out here, for you guys over there, oh, I'm so technologically advanced at that. Out there, in that court area, is what is considered the court of the Gentiles. There was this stone that we have that has been recovered. Uh, when I was in Israel, I said, no. <laughs> Have I mentioned that? Oh, anyway. Uh, not today, huh? Uh, this is what it says. It reads, No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death. No Gentile can go past that outer court area. Now let's go back to this. Here we go. Got my slides a little goofed up. Um, when Jesus comes into this area... This is the area he comes into first, where he sees all the animals and all the money changers and like this. Now, let's let's talk about this historically. Uh, One of the things that's going on in this area out here, in the the area of the Gentiles and women, is merchants are there to provide them with animals to sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And it was generally historically pretty impractical for people who would be traveling from Egypt or they'd be traveling from, uh, you know, uh, Cyprus or wherever to come to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice. It's, it's interesting to me that, that, that what's happened here is that people are there to help serve them and to give them an animal that they can use in order to sacrifice and worship. That's historically accurate. I mean, that, that's what's happening here. In addition to that, every Jew was to pay the temple tax, and that temple tax could not be paid with foreign money. Because on foreign money were pictures of emperors. And one of the commandments is no graven images. So money changers were out there. 
money changers were out there to say, okay, you've got this uh, money here you want to exchange for the shekel, and uh, we'll do that for you so that you can now go in and pay the temple tax. I sort of had a similar experience. Two years ago, as I mentioned, we were in Israel. Um, I had some American money. And I came there, and I, I'm, I'm just nervous about credit cards, and I don't own a debit card. You know, I, I'm just nervous about those. And so we're there, and everybody's telling me, just take your debit card, and I won't use it at Homeland. I'm not using it in Jerusalem, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so we're there, and, they, and, and, and I've got some cash, but I want to get some money that I can spend in Israel. I've mentioned I've been there. And uh, <clears throat> so... Uh, I go there, and I'm looking around there saying, well, they'll charge you about 2 3% to exchange rate. And I had an app on my phone, still do, on a converter on how much American money is going for today for shekels. So I could walk right up, you know, to this guy and say, hey, buddy, how much are you going to charge me? Now, I went right in the Damascus Gate, right inside the holy city. And I've been trying to find somebody that I can get a good deal on. And I wasn't watching real careful. And I went to this place right inside the Damascus Gate, and this guy had this thing on here. I know, John, you've been, yeah, I've, I've read stuff on the line now about this place. $2 to change your money. Well, man, that got my attention. I thought, I'm going right in there. Now, I, I walk up to this guy and say, You're only going to charge me $2 to, to give me shekels for American dollars? Yes, I will. So I, I say, Here, here's what I want. So I wanted $200. Gave him $200. I am feeling great. I feel like, man, I'm a tourist. I know what I'm doing. About 20 minutes later, I started counting. I didn't, I didn't realize that the 3.5 shekel exchange rate, he was, char- he was giving me a shekel exchange rate of about 2.7. To get $200, it cost me 40 bucks. <laughs> I got hosed. <clears throat> and I leaned over to Becky and said, they're still here. <laughs> the money changers. They're still in the old city. You're in the wrong I, I, oh, I'm telling you, I, 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 there was the fastest place I could get in, John. Now, again, these guys were doing a service. They, they were doing that. But here's what happens, it apparently is. I, I would say it this way. One of the things that begins to happen is what you call unintended consequences. You know, Jesus seems to be seeing that what's going on here, number one, is that they're selling and they're doing all this in this area. This will be important. This is the only area Gentiles and women can be in. It's the only area they can be. And so now this area is filled up with cattle, with doves, with money changers, the clanging, the loudness of all of that. And Jesus walks in, even though it may have been, like you say, Uh, something that was done for a proper reason. He looks at them and he walks in and makes this a rope to make a whip to get him out. And he said, take these things away and stop making my father's house a place of business. What had originally begun to be, if you will, a place of worship and to help people had suddenly, if you will, become a place of commerce. Jesus shows the abuse here. Now, again, uh, this is... Not the way I don't think it started. I think I, I, in my notes I wrote this idea about unintended consequences. Have you ever known something that started good that went haywire after a while? You know, something that you thought, well, this is a great idea, and we started it, and it looked good, but it went haywire. I mean, I can remember in my own life, 
you know, that thinking, here's, here's the idea. I told you some months ago that I think it's a good idea and I tithe and give my offering. But it's funny that over the years I've realized there have been so many times that I've never even thought about it when I'm putting it. It's kind of like I'm paying dues. It's a good thing, but the unintended consequence, it became a habit to the extent that it seems like it didn't matter anymore. And so Jesus takes great issue with these people. That even though it may have started correctly as a service to pilgrims and people who would come, he is unwilling to allow this to happen for a couple reasons I'll get to. So here's what we learn. You've already seen this. i got my slides. This apple. What do we learn from the conversation? What do we learn? You can see there on your outline about Jesus' clarity. It seems to me that Jesus brings some clarity to this situation. And it's this. Holy versus common. Um, This is an interesting idea when he comes in to this temple area. Because Jesus said, this place, this house, is my Father's house. Notice what he says. My Father's... This isn't your temple. This isn't something that belongs to the Jewish people. This is my Father's house. And I think that one of the things about Jesus' clarity here is He shows us the difference between the holy and the common. Do you know, I was talking to some guys the other day, that to me it was important that when I learned that the opposite of holy isn't unholy, do you know that? It's not. The, The Hebrew word kodesh, holy, the opposite of holy, the Hebrew term is chol, it's not like you're going to spit on somebody. Chol, uh, C-H-O-L, hard C-H-O-L. And it just means common. You know, isn't it interesting that what Jesus says is this house that's supposed to be my father's, you're treating it like it's yours. You're treating it like it's common. You're treating it like you can drag animals in here and do whatever you want to do. And it seems to me that, that Jesus is able to make this distinction here. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Is it wrong? I don't, I don't know that. I mean, I, you know, we, at church we sell CDs at different times like that and do things. I don't think this is a, a negative thing on that to say you can't do things. I think it's the idea of turning this place from a holy place, from a place where we come to worship God, to just common. You know what? I, I'll probably start meddling here in just a minute. But uh, I remember as a kid, and I'm not saying we go back to this, but, but I am concerned with my students. When I was a kid, I had some clothes hanging in a closet called my huh? Church clothes or Sunday best. <clears throat> yeah. I remember that. Do you remember that? And you know, I'm not I'm not suggesting we go back to that, but you know, I think in some ways I understood as a kid that there was something different about God and the house of God. It was a holy place. It, it, it wasn't a scary place, but, but there was something about it that was different. And, all, and, and there was a sense in which I approached this place with a different sense than I did the movie theater or, or any other place like that. I, I wonder if, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting we go back to those dress code things, but I wonder in the, in the, in the our, our attempt to, to feel closer to God, not, that's good that we've lost something of a sense of holiness. The holiness of God. He's not just our buddy. He's not just somebody, you know. I, I told my students this uh, one time. They were, we were talking about this, and I said, you know, I live with this principle, I, I, and I try to apply it to this, is 
that I think that the way that I dress or you dress tells me what you think about the people you're meeting. Does that sound right? That the way I dress and the way you dress maybe tells me something about the people you're meeting, what you think about them. Just, just a thought. But, but this idea of Jesus saying, this is a holy place. This, this isn't to be treated common. Now, I'm not suggesting that we not be able to talk to God and, and, and sense His awareness and presence. I'm just afraid that sometimes we've gone so far the other way that it's not anything special. Does that sound familiar? I've been in both of these areas where there's too much and then there's not enough. Isn't it interesting that we, we constantly are back? I'm just suggesting to you that in this conversation that Jesus is saying there's some things going on here that are unacceptable here. He's just saying, look, you can't turn my father's house. In fact, the, the, the other gospel writers, now let me, let me move on. I've got to hurry. I've got three minutes here. <clears throat> Personal versus mechanical. I think one of the things, and I'm reading here as I, as I study this, that, that Jesus may be dealing with some issues of the mechanicalness of this. I mean, it's important for people to have an animal to sacrifice. It's important to have the money to, to if you will, to, to do the exchange. But I wonder about this. I, I wonder, you know, in, in the Old Testament, a person was to get their own animal and bring it in their house for four days and take care of it. And, you know, I, I, listen, we, we've had a couple of dogs show up to our house, and by that evening, they're ours. You know, right? you know how animals are, little ones? And uh, you know, I used to carry, I carried dog food in my car in the wintertime because I'd bring them all, you know, feed them. Becky was thrilled. And, but, you know, what, what I wonder is, has this now become mechanical? You just go there, buy an animal, kill it, go home and go home. I give it and go home. Just kill it. Think, think about having an animal in your house for a few days. And the kids feeding it. And it getting used to your voice. And, and, and petting it and spending some time. Keeping it clean because it has to be without spot, without blemish. You keep that little animal for a while. And after a few days, it becomes the day you've got to take it now. And you put that little animal over your shoulders like a shepherd would. Front legs here, back legs here. And as you're going to the temple, it's a lot of racket, a lot of sound. And... You're petting the little animal's head to say it's going to be okay, and they've kind of gotten used to your voice, and so now that calms down. And so you continue to go, and you've had this little animal. You're you're, you're trying to care for it. You maybe feed it with your hand while you're there. And, and there's a long line, and it's going to take a while. And so you talk to it, and you spend some time trying to comfort it. Then all of a sudden, you get to the front of the line, and you take that little lamb off your shoulders in a pretty quick move and you put it down in front of you and you put your hands on it and about the time you put your hands on it that priest slits that throat of that animal from ear to ear it stutters and stumbles and hits the ground that's not real mechanical I'm going to guess that when dad went home that night people probably looked down in their plates and thought about what had happened that day. That an innocent little animal died for me. You see, we've been Christians too long. We've been Christians too long. So this is just mechanical. And I think Jesus is saying, you know, I, I, this can't become mechanical. 
This can't become something you show up five minutes, get an animal, come on, go, let's go. We're going to get you in there, and it's over. One writer made it like this. He said, these dull souls mechanically disposed of their religious duty and practiced the discharging of one's religious duty without zeal or desire to honor God. The selling of these acceptable animals for people dulled their souls to the extent that it no longer was personal. It was no longer my animal. It's something I bought four minutes ago, and now it's going in, it's taking him out, and I'm going home. It's possible. Uh, I have to get the resource on it. Yeah, I was reading. uh, Yeah, I'll get it to you. But this dull mechanicalism that happened. I'll tell you real quick the end of the story. i got to hurry. The other day I'm in class, and I'm telling my students this. I'm talking about this, this mechanical notion. You know, we got a couple little dogs, Gracie and Buddy. They don't know they're dogs, <clears throat> but they are. And I was telling them, you know, I, I've thought about this, the mechanicalness of this. And, I, you know, over the years I've had some students who weren't very respectful and showed great disregard for my class, which I can't imagine. As engaging and funny as I am. Not really. And, 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 and they, uh, you know, I mean, they've been, very, they've been disrespectful. They've been dismissive. They've even tried to disturb other students. And I've just had to kind of take control of that. And I remind them, it's my house. I, you will do this. I said to them, you know, <clears throat> wouldn't it be interesting if one of my, let's say, one of my students it was like that, disrespectful and dismissive, got in trouble. They worked at a, exotic ranch or something like that and they had let some animals out that were used to feed the big animals and the only way that student was going to get out of trouble is if I would give them Gracie and Buddy to feed to the big lion cats you know if I, if, if I was going to say okay you've been disrespectful you've been unkind you've been dismissive, and I'm going to give you my two dogs to feed to those lions because you are in trouble with your employer so you won't get fired. You know what? I wouldn't do that. Especially if the guy didn't change and promise me I'll never do that again, Professor Sanders. I will never be disrespectful. I will listen now. I'll do my homework. No, no. Here's a guy that says, I don't even care if you do because I won't change. I couldn't do that. I I couldn't give Buddy and Gracie for some knucklehead unless they promised to me and showed me they would act right. See, we've been Christians too long. God did something bigger than that. He didn't give a pet. He gave a son. And Jesus knows this mechanical versus personal kind of approach to religion. This kind of mechanical approach of going through the motions. And I think this is one of the reasons He's got to drive those people out. It is, if you will, dulling the souls of the people that are even participating in the activity. When you and I think about what Jesus did for us, is it mechanical or is it personal? I think I said this back here earlier, and I got this out of whack. I think I've got it here. I don't know. 
Have you given any thought <clears throat> to what you do on a regular basis relates to your relationship with God and why are you doing what you're doing? Is there any need to review those activities? Have they become common instead of holy? Have they become mechanical instead of personal? You know, I think the only way we can do that is lean into it and just say, God, I've treated the holy as common. I've treated the personal as mechanical. And I've got to have you help me. How do we do that? I think we come honestly to God to say this is just a natural tendency I've got. It seems to be what human beings struggle with. But I, I, this, to me, this is incredibly important. In my life, in your life, as we see this conversation with Jesus, He is crystal clear. Don't let the holy become common, and don't let the personal become mechanical. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, take these words and these thoughts, these ideas that we see in Your Son, who comes to us with not only glory and honor, but clarity to help us to see ourselves. Help us as we study Your Word to be not willing to allow the holy to become common or the personal to become mechanical. Even as we go into the service today, may we be fully engaged with our hearts and souls and minds in the worship of God, we pray in the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. We'll finish this up next week.